0: Tonight I'm really excited because we're starting a new series uh, called Colony. For the past several months, we've been talking about family, living in heavenly reality. That's been our vision for this series, and we've examined these four different rooms as we've been going through that series. We looked at healthy relationships, healthy leadership, personal thriving, and worship. And so now we're kind of moving into this next series, but we want to kind of lay it on top. And so I want to give you a little bit of a background why this matters to me, and then we're going to dig right in. Um, Like many of you, when I first uh, stepped out from my parents' home and I moved away and I started entering into college, I began to encounter a world that was far larger and more complex than anything that I had initially understood. Um, And not only that, but I began to question aspects of my own faith and wondering, what, is, what exactly is it I believe? And, and perhaps even more importantly than what I believe, why do I believe these things? Why do I hold these to be true? And I pretty quickly found myself coming to a place of disillusionment with the concept of evangelicalism in general. Now, I don't resent the way that I grew up. I'm actually at a place where I'm really proud of the tradition that the Lord placed me in and the way that he raised me up um, and established certain truths in my life early on, but You know, when you get into that place where you're beginning to discover who you are and what you believe and what you desire, there's that place I think a lot of us come to where we slowly find ourselves deconstructing the faith that we grew up under. And sometimes that can be a very violent, sudden process. Sometimes that can take several years. But I found myself in my college years, in my early 20s, um, really caught between two worlds, that I still considered myself a Christian. I had wandered from the church for a little while and had started attending another uh, small Anglican church in St. Augustine, uh, but I didn't have a lot of tolerance for other Christians, certainly not other Christians my age. I don't know if you ever felt that. But there was like this disconnect. It felt like the, for, for a lot of Christians there was this overwhelming desire to, to remove ourselves from the world. And to kind of hide back, and and, and by extension, a lot of Christians tended to be very guided by fear, um, and very disconnected from what was going on in the world, only looking for our own little Christian versions. Well, let's create our own Christian music industry, then we don't have to listen to big bad secular music. Well, let's have our own Christian coffee shop in our church, so then we don't have to go to big bad Starbucks, or whatever it might be. And we created all of these little Christian versions of things that actually shrunk the world and made it more manageable, but it seemed to be guided by fear, and in the meantime, I had gotten involved with a a group of friends in uh, St. Augustine who were uh, just passionate about life, and really seeking to make a difference, And, and most of my early 20s was going to like little punk rock house shows, and protesting the Iraq war, and like, you know, this guitar kills fascists, and you know, lifting our skinny fists like antennas to heaven, that was so much of my life, and I found so much life, and vigor, and curiosity in that community, and it just felt so disconnected, not only from what I had grown up in, but what I had experienced for other Christians in that area. And eventually, I kind of worked through that, and I was really blessed when I eventually moved to Nashville. I found a community that was the marriage of those two things, a passion and a vitality for life, but also being founded upon the truth of the gospel. And it was something that I had been hungering for that I didn't even know was actually possible. And I think a lot of us experience that. We go through that de- deconstruction with Christianity. What we're really going through is the deconstruction of religiosity and Christendom where Christianity has been uh, kind of absorbed into culture and muted and numbed and made small and more manageable. But I believe that when we actually go through that deconstruction, we begin the process of reconstructing. And when I began to engage with the Jesus that I found in the Gospels and the God that was revealed through Christ Jesus, it was like reading these stories all over again. And it began this process of transforming me into something entirely different than what I had previously understood. You see, we're at this unique place in history, and this is what a lot of what I'm talking about tonight. We're moving this unique place in history when we're asking these questions about what church is. But friends, we need to move past the place where church is just a TED Talk sandwiched between two U2 concerts. You hear me in this? Like too often, we have believed this thing that we're supposed to reduce and make small and find our place in culture. And it's actually reduced what the gospel is. It's made small who Jesus is and it's turned good news into good advice. If you just want to live a better life, there are a lot of other options out there. If you want to listen to good music, there's a lot of good music out there. But we have to rediscover what is authentic Christianity? What is church actually supposed to be? And that's brought us to this place where we're stepping into this new series called Colony. So let's pray. I'm gonna pray for you and if you all would pray for me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these sweet and beautiful times of worship. Lord, we pray your blessing upon Trevor and the guys that have come up from Lakeland, Lord. Yeah, Father, I just thank you so much for the incredible gifts that you've given them. Lord, we just pray for more. We pray for an increase in this authentic desire to represent you well uh, wherever they lead, whether it's together or when they kind of go their separate ways, Father. And Lord, I pray that tonight, you know, that song that we sang about mercy triumphing over judgment, Lord, would that be kind of our guiding principle as we're exploring what is it that you've called us to be as the church, as your people, as your body. So, Father, I pray that even as we dig into some deep and contentious issues, that your Spirit would guide us in boldness and in confidence. That at every turn we encounter your kindness. That the deeper we go down the rabbit hole, Lord, we only discover your heart for us and for the world you've placed us in. And so, Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord. A rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. And so, Colony. The, 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 the series is coming out of this question. What does it look like to be the people of God in the 21st century? What does it look like to be the people of God today, in this moment? One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, said, we need to stop asking 16th century questions through a 19th century lens and start asking 21st century questions through a first century lens. It's important in the modern church that we begin to scrape away all of the guff that has impeded our ability to see the world the way that God does and to ultimately see who he's called us to be. And so I want us to begin by even just talking about what exactly is a colony. And I've come to these two uh, conclusions that kind of sum it up for me. What is a colony but an island of culture and a foretaste? of a new world, an island of culture and a foretaste of a new world. You know, oftentimes we borrow the French phrase avant-garde, and it means the front lines. It's the people that would go into the unknown territory and establish something new there. And that's what we're talking about. Is the colony of God, we are called to be his avant-garde. We are called to go into the places of darkness and to bring light. Now, a lot of times when we use the word colony, we're stepping on some toes there because colonialism and imperialism historically have very negative connotations in our culture and around the world. Indeed, so many of the atrocities that have been committed over the past 2,000 years find their source actually in Christendom. That Christians have gone out in the name of Jesus and colonized places, but done so not with the cross, but with the sword and by force, by force have tried to establish the kingdom of God, but we know that that does not and cannot work. Consider how most of the world is organized today is based upon those colonial tendencies of the 16th through 19th centuries. And what we know from history that colonialism tends to lead us into a place where we're purging out cultures, or we're committing genocide, or we're trying to assimilate the natives just to make them more like us. Consider the contemporary situation in Israel. What do we see? Is the nation of Israel advancing by force, establishing colonies in places that are previously held by Palestinians, and using it by force and justifying it in the name of law, justifying it in the name of religion? And it's leading to genocide. And it is not in God's intentions. It does not reflect God's heart. And sometimes it could be hard for us to find examples of colony that actually contain within them the kingdom of God. But within the Christian tradition, we have the beautiful story of the monastic movement. That even from the second century, there were men and women who were so radically caught up in the message of Jesus that they dropped everything in their Roman Empire, everything in their culture, and began to live these radical alternative lives for the sake of the gospel. And throughout the centuries, these monastic communities have been these faithful presences in some very dark places and have upheld the faith of the gospel to almost irrational proportions. They have chosen to be true to who Jesus is in the face of overwhelming persecution, even when it doesn't make sense, especially when it doesn't make sense. And they become these bastions to us of what it looks like to be the people of God. And so how did we become the people of God? There's this line in Philippians where it says that we are citizens of heaven. The more uh, finite translation, the, the, the finer hone translation is we are the colony of heaven. That's the culture that we've established within the people of God. That God has been planted within us, that we are the colony of heaven. But it's important for each of us to recognize that our citizenship has been relocated. We've been brought out from the cultures of the world, and we've been established in the colony of God. In Ephesians 2, we see Paul talking about this. He says this, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath you see there even paul's talking about this unholy trinity that we have been rescued from that we used we all every single one of you used to live this way you used to follow the ways of this world you used to follow the ways of the king of the the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air talking about the satan the accuser the evil one the enemy and you also used to gratify the cravings of your flesh and the flesh the enemy And the world, the unholy trinity, that used to hold you captive. The unholy trinity that did everything that it could to erase your divine DNA, your spiritual identity, and implant something else in there that was unnatural. But these are the things that God has rescued us from. And Paul goes on, he says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I have this radical notion that there is complete unity in the church. Capital C Church. The the universal church is already unified. It is already unified. We have to come into agreement with that. Because you see, my friends, as soon as we make it about we need to pursue unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're turning it back into our works. But what Paul is saying here about us collectively as the people of God is that we have been saved by grace through faith. We have been made alive, not because of the things that we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has accomplished. And so there is unity in the church today because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. It is up to us to come into agreement with that. In the same way that you can't look at your biological family and disown them and all of a sudden they're not part of your family, you cannot look at the church of whatever down the street and just disown them because you don't like their theology. They're your brothers, they're your sisters. You can't look back through 2,000 years of church history and disown people and say, oh, well, we're the ones that have actually got, we've got it right. Everybody else has been kidding themselves for 2,000 years. No, they are your brothers and sisters. They're your forefathers and your foremothers. Because unity in Christ comes from what Christ has accomplished, not from what we have accomplished. It's imperative that we understand that as the colony of God, that we are completely bound by what Jesus has done on our behalf. And Paul goes on, he says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Now listen to this, church, for we are God's handiwork. You are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do So we find our citizenship has been relocated from that of the world and the flesh and the enemy firmly into the colony of God, the people of God, his new nation. And Paul so beautifully talks here about how we've been rescued from something, how we've been crafted into something, but we've also been set out to be something with a purpose, friends, if your understanding of your salvation ends with the equation that your life is a little bit happier than it was before, you're missing an entire dynamic part of what salvation means. The end result is not your personal betterment. That's just part of the story. But God saved you, rescued you, reconciled you to himself for a purpose. And these good works that he had set aside before you were even born for you to do. And what is that? To be a faithful presence in a world that is desperately crying out for his. That is your divine vocation. That is the task to which we have all been called. In Ephesians 3, Paul goes on and says, Now this responsibility has been handed to the church to make known the manifest wisdom of God as revealed through Christ Jesus. That that vocation that was given to Israel to be the holy nation and the royal priesthood. Now that has been offered to the church and that is our responsibility. Now on Tuesday when we were talking about this concept of colony and we're really struggling to find a good example of what it looks like to be a colony in the way that God has crafted us to be, we had a really hard time when we were considering human colonies and our history with colonialism. And then Cole said, well... Isn't it odd that we have to turn to the animal kingdom to see what a good and thriving colony is? And so our first thought, of course, was naked mole rats. Perhaps you've been to animal kingdom or you've been to a zoo and you've seen a colony of naked mole rats and they're disgusting and they jump all over each other and there's like tubes and they're going everywhere. But it turns out that naked mole rats are actually a lot harder to come by than one would think. We We wanted to have these tubes that we would build all around in the church and we could watch these naked mole rats. It didn't work. Well, we came up with a list, and we actually came across the idea of the beehive, the beehive. And it's the perfect image for what we're called to be as the colony of God. You can see that we've even established our very own city, beautiful church, beehive out this window here. So we're going to have honey in a few months, maybe. We're going to get the snakes next week, and then we'll kind of, we'll see who's holy and who's not holy. Just kidding. Not that kind of church. Not that kind of church. But there's this ancient Christian symbol of the beehive that really speaks to this idea of the people of God being a colony. And I love beehives because they they resist the temptation to fall into one of two categories, either isolation or dominion. You know, a lot of times when we talk about colony, we find this isolationist perspective that I'm not going to be in the world, nor am I going to be of the world. We see it going back to the Puritans and some other little like, groups of, of Christians throughout history. But we even find it a, a lot of times in the evangelical church today, as I had said before that we build our own Christian churches and we build our own Christian schools and we have our own Christian coffee shops and we have our own Christian restaurants and we build the Christian version of everything else so that we don't have to interact with the world. And we've retreated and we've fallen back. We love the idea of being a holy nation, but the whole royal priesthood bit is a little nerve-wracking. And the, the modern church has a tendency towards isolationism. But the other end of the spectrum is dominionism. Dominionism. Think about Spanish conquistadors in South America coming in and conquering by force, converting people to the love of God at the gunpoint. And sometimes in the modern church, we have that mentality too, that we're going to go out and we're going to conquer for Christ Jesus. I'm going to talk about this later when we talk about Nonviolence and politics and all those beautiful things. But when Paul says more than conquerors, what do we often go? Yes, super conquerors. We're like ultra-conquerors. No, 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 no. We are more than conquerors. Because we don't go out with the sword and establish the kingdom of God through force. But the bee, the bee colony is this beautiful symbol for us. Because bees are not isolationists, nor are they dominionists. But bees go out to be a faithful presence in the world around them. And it gives us such a beautiful template for what we are to be as the church. We're to be a colony that beautifies the world. You see, as bees go out and they bring something back to the colony and they make something sweet, They cross-pollinate all of the plants and they perpetuate all of these other um, different creatures within the ecosystem. You know, we discovered um, even this week as we were doing research that if the entire bee population of the world was, was to suddenly disappear, human beings would only exist for another four years before our entire species would be wiped out. Think about if we could say the same thing about the church. Think about that for a second. That if the church was to disappear tomorrow, the human species would disappear in four years. What if we were that necessary to the flourishing of humanity? That we were that kind of faithful presence. And that's the kind of colony that we're called to be. We're not isolationist nor are we dominionist. But by being a faithful presence, we beautify the world by bringing it back into relationship with its creator. And so I want to talk about the relationship between this family living in heavenly reality idea and now this idea of colony that we're moving into deeper. Last week in one of these kind of uh, fits of, of fever and chills that I had at like 3 in the morning sleeping in my brother's basement in D.C., I ha- the Lord gave me this image. And it was uh, the relationship between family and colony. Now throughout this whole series when we've been talking about family, we've been talking about healthy relationship, healthy leadership, personal thriving and worship, primarily what we're talking about is my relationship to you in the context of God. That's the foundation of what family is, my relationship to you as my brother or sister in Christ in the context of God. But what the Lord revealed to me last week, that when we're talking about colonies, our relationship to the world, us to them in the context of God that we begin to look outside of the walls of the family to see the world the way God does and the beauty of this is is that when we speak about family we're talking often about Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior but when we talk about colony now we're talking about Jesus as the universal Lord and Savior now try this just for a second think about somebody in your life okay now shout out their names I said shout. I can't shout. You gotta shout. Okay. Jesus is their Lord and Savior. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because see, here's yet one more place where the church has been poisoned by our culture. Where we go to people and we say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but that's just my personal opinion. Do you realize there's no such thing as a personal faith? There is no such thing as a personal faith. It is a lie that we have been fed by a culture who seeks to diminish us and keep us small and keep us numb. But if you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that means that he is Lord and Savior of everybody you know. That he is the way, the truth, and the life for everyone you know. Now, again, think about this. Think about a country. Pick a nice weird one. Think about a country. Now yell it out. It's a city. Jesus is Lord and Savior of that country. You see, sometimes we, if if we don't over-personalize our faith and say, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, but that's just my personal opinion, sometimes we over-localize our faith. So maybe Jesus is Lord of Central Florida. Maybe Jesus is Lord of Florida itself. Maybe Jesus is Lord of the United States, but we're uncomfortable when it comes to other places. But what the beauty of the image of colony gives us is that we recognize that Jesus is universally the Lord and Savior of all and it dramatically shifts our understanding of how we step out into the world and what it is that we carry with us now especially regarding this us and them thing this is very important paradigm shift for us to understand the church's attitude is not us versus them it is us for them Okay, it's not us versus them, it's us for them. This is what Paul's talking about. You were created in advance to do good works that God had set aside for you. Elsewhere, it talks about how you are the aroma of Christ. Or perhaps you want to say, God baked a pie and you're the flavor. That one's for free, Hunter, you can have that one. But the church's attitude is not us versus them, but us for them. All right, I'm about to get political We're going there a whole lot in this series, so buckle down. And a little bit of a disclaimer, okay? What we're going to be talking about in this series, I'm not interested in telling you what to think. But I am very interested in helping you learn how to see. So we're going to say things individually, myself, Cole, others, and it may not be something you agree with, and that's okay. We are not the church because we intellectually affirm the same doctrine. And we're not going to be a church that has an opinion on every single thing that you come in and there's 95 theses that you have to agree with in order to be part of this church. No, we are unified in our pursuit of God. Everything else is conversation. That's my disclaimer, but this is what I want to say. A couple weeks ago, Target changed their policies on bathrooms and they now allow transgender people into the bathroom in which they associate. And there was a response in North Carolina to establish a law that people have to go into the bathroom upon which they are genetically already predetermined to go into. And it's caused such a stir and it broke my heart to see Christians, brothers and sisters of mine, taking a stand on social media to boycott Target. To stand up and to say, well, I have a wife or kids and I'm afraid that someone's going to get raped so I'm going to boycott Target. Who's with me? And just like we saw several years ago with Chick-fil-A, Christians get up in arms and they boycott consumerism. They don't even boycott consumerism, they just cons- boycott a store. And I have never seen in the history of the world how ostracizing a minority of a minority has ever worked or ever advanced the kingdom of God. And that is not the response of Christ Jesus. Now make no mistake, when it comes to the concept of transgenderism, I am a conservative. Okay, I do not avow and, and support the concept of transgenderism. But if I let my theology cause separateness between me and someone else who is dearly beloved by God, then I am in the wrong. And the response of Jesus is to align himself with those who find themselves on the margin. Do you realize that by the time that most transgender youth reach adulthood, over 50% of them attempted suicide? And this kind of vitriol that comes out of the church when we think it's about dominion, when we think it's about us establishing rules and regulations that prop up our beliefs, that we do violence to the kingdom of God, when we perceive that us versus them mentality and we re-erect the dividing walls of hostility that Christ Jesus has brought down, we're in the wrong. And it's uncreative and it's not kingdom. See, Peter goes on to say this in First Peter chapter 2. He says this about us. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. See, he echoes here Paul talking in Ephesians 2 about what we have been rescued from, but what we've been created to be now. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so what does it look like for us to be the colony of God? What does it look like for us to be the faithful presence? What does it look like for us to communicate the love of God and to be the aroma of Christ, that we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light? That is the Christian response to all of these different issues in the 21st century. And I love those two images, holy nation, royal priesthood. As I mentioned before, this is Old Testament language. This is Abraham language. This is covenant language that God spoke through Abraham. I'm going to bless you with a nation and your nation is going to be a blessing to all the other nations. And as God continued to reiterate his promise to Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the tribes, that language became formed, as holy nation being set apart for a purpose, and then royal priesthood, being the mediators between God and his creation. And when you read the story of Israel, you see that Israel was very happy with the idea of being a holy nation and set apart and special, but Israel was not comfortable with the idea of being a royal priesthood. And that's the thing that Jesus came to open up to all who would call on Jesus as Lord. And Peter goes on, he says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So not only are we a holy nation and a royal priesthood, but we are to live as foreigners and exiles. Some of the translations say aliens. We are to live as if we are aliens in a foreign land, set apart. This is not our home. This is not our culture. But within the colony of God, we live such good lives that people may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's our response to the world around us. That's what we're called to be. And I very naturally understand this idea of being a resident alien. Because I myself am one. I have a green card, so don't get me into any sort of legal trouble or I'll be, you know, deported and that'll be a mess. But I, I, I naturally understood this growing up. Even moving here at a very young age, I was still raised in a largely Irish culture within my home, and I found myself kind of between these two cultures. But the gift that that afforded me was the natural ability to be a little bit more critical about the things that I was hearing from the culture around me about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a child of God, that I wasn't conditioned into some sort of blind nationalism, but inherently living as an alien in a foreign land with no obligation to pledge allegiance to much of anything, I was naturally able to understand what it means to live in that way. And I, I love when I sit with some of you And you're telling me these amazing God stories of how God is transforming you and continuing to save you from the unholy trinity. And you're coming alive to Christ and you're discovering the gospel as if for the first time and Jesus is becoming this real and living presence in your life. But there's this kind of hesitancy because you feel like maybe you're losing your mind. Like maybe you're going crazy and some of you have said to me like, am I I weird? Am I odd? And I say, yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. You're weird. You're odd. You're different. You see because our culture around us tells us be like everybody else. You've got to you've got to fit in. You've got to do whatever you can to be a part of what's going around. But you see what happens to us when God gets a hold of us when his spirit begins to work within us is he transforms us and lifts us out of the cultural status quo and turns us into something new and we become strange. We become other. We become aliens in a foreign land. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas in his book Resident Alien said this, we want to claim the church's oddness as essential to its faithfulness. What does that do for you? We want to claim the church's oddness as essential to its faithfulness. And I would even add on to Hauerwas that it's the oddness of the church when, a, when, when sit, sitting next to the broken systems of the world, but also simultaneously the kindness of believers and their affinity to their fellow humanity. That beautiful combination of oddness and kindness that advances the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to get prophetic for a second here. Which I don't claim too often because I don't want to, to mince the words of God but I believe that for the first time in history, Christians are almost completely removed from the center of culture. Indeed, I would say in the entire history of humanity, this is the first time that faith has not been at the center of culture and society. Consider that for a moment. That even with the, the, the history of this if this country and we can argue about whether or not it was established uh, as a secular country or it was established as a Christian country, but de facto, Christianity has largely been at the center of what it is to be American. We are finally seeing that being separated out, and we 're seeing it around the world. We are seeing cult- the, the rise of the cultural uh, secularism that comes out of the Enlightenment. and the church is almost completely removed from the center of society. But what kind of opportunities does this afford us? Because I'm crazy enough to believe this is actually a blessing and not a curse. Because it affords us the opportunity to be very critical about the things that we actually believe. And perhaps we begin to wipe off the guff that has been covered over our eyes, that has sold us an American consumerist version of Christianity that does not fit the bill, of a God and a Jesus who are way too small to deal with the world as it is today of a church that is increasingly losing its significance when it comes to shaping culture and rescuing human beings. But what if this is a good thing? You know, last year when we talked about the spiritual gifts and Cole talked about the apostle, we talked about how that word apostle was literally used in the Roman Empire as the avant-garde, as the soldiers that would go into a new territory and establish a perimeter so that others could come in and gather. And this is my prophetic word. I believe that our generation and our children's generation will be primarily apostolic because they will be establishing new territory for the kingdom in places that it was not previously because we are finally separating out our faith from the culture around us. But we have to stop pretending that we have the luxury of being at the center of culture. We have to stop pretending that we're the ones that are in the middle making all of the calls, because that leads us to the pretentiousness of just trying to legislate our faith on top of other people. It leads us away from assuming that our way is the right way and if everybody else doesn't like it, well, they can just leave this country. That's not where we're headed anymore. The church is increasingly finding itself on the margins, but guess what? Jesus purposely placed himself at the margins. Jesus spent very little time with the religious and governmental elite. He spent very little time rubbing elbows with people in positions of power. In fact, he was actually quite critical of them. And he used his prophetic voice to call them into repentance. But Jesus very often, almost exclusively, aligned himself with the people that were on the margins. The people that weren't worth very much to society. The people that weren't smart enough, weren't strong enough, didn't have enough money, weren't talented enough. Whatever it is, that's where Jesus went. And he said, not only are these people entering into the kingdom of God ahead of you, but they are the very foundation of that same kingdom. And that's the precipice upon which we stand today in the American church. And so we are called to influence culture, but not to conform to it. As I was praying through this, the Lord gave me another vision of this this gigantic house that we've built a City Beautiful Church. And it's got these four huge rooms in it and it, it all all 300 of us get to live in this house and it's beautiful and we move from room to room but what i saw was that all the out external walls of this house were actually made of glass and there came a point when the lord invited all of us to go and to press our noses up against the glass and to look out over the countryside and as we began to look, we saw that there's all of these other little houses on top of these other little hills, and it began to birth in us a, 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 like a, um, just a curiosity of, of what are they building over there? How are they arranging their house? What's the Lord doing there? And we saw so many people that were wandering through the valleys and through the hills that did not have a house to call their own. And God was saying, now go. Go out from the colony and to draw back in my lost children. You see, as a church, God is always going to give us new rooms to build upon this house that we've been building. But when we recognize ourselves that we are also the colony of God, he invites us to go out into the countryside and to begin to interact with the people there and to call them home. You see, there's a problem when the church tries to find its place in culture. Yet another one of these lies that we've learned That there's this umbrella of culture, society, and there's government, and there's education, and there's commerce, and there's entertainment, and then there's religion. And we're just one little aspect of all of these things. And too often what happens in the church when we try to find our place in culture is before long we find ourselves compromising who we're called to be. In our desperation to say old things in new ways, we begin to say new things in new ways. And we slowly wander away from the core tenets of our faith. There's a problem when the church tries to find its place in culture instead of choosing to see that we are aliens in a foreign land. We are foreigners and exiles. And it is who we are called to be. I want to show you this picture. We have the most dire of warnings less than 100 years ago in the world that in the 1930s, as, not, as Nazism rose to power in, in a broken and battered Germany after World War I and promised that they were gonna rebuild national pride and rebuild the, the German ethos, so many people in the German church bowed to Nazism and not only allowed Nazism to rise to power, but as you can see in this picture, saluted Hitler, saluted the Fuhrer, gave in to that culture, and it wasn't until the, the precipice of World War II that some began to step up and to say, this is not okay. We are compromising who we're called to be as the church. And they began to gather and call themselves the confessing church. The, theologians like Karl Barth, pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up in the face of oppression and said, this is not okay. This is not okay. This is not who we're called to be as the church. Now, I know in our modern era, the Hitler card is always the one that's thrown down whenever you want to be hyperbolic. You know who else had a microphone? Hitler. We do that all the time, and I know it's desensitized us to what that actually means. Or you go, you think Hitler's in heaven? You know, we, this is what we do all the time. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch It's not too much of a stretch for us to look back a mere 80 years ago and see what happens when a church that has lost its identity tries to find its place in culture and slowly and steadily walks away from faith and attaches itself to the state. Now, I am not comparing the American government to Nazi Germany, although there are probably many policies that we have that would more closely align themselves with Nazi Germany than they would with the kingdom of God. But church, if we do not wake up, if we continue to play this game where we just contribute nice little tropes to society and hoping that people will notice us and maybe possibly walk through the doors of our church, it is not too much of a stretch to imagine ourselves giving ourselves completely over to wherever our society heads. Paul says this in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Again, there's that holy idea to be set apart for a purpose. For this is your true and proper worship. What does it look like to worship God, to give over everything you are to him? To no longer stand with one foot firmly planted in culture and one foot firmly planted in the colony but to give yourself over as a living sacrifice, and I put myself in that too. I'm right there with you. But to put ourselves firmly in the colony of God, holy and pleasing to him, that is true and proper worship. Paul says this, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Do not compromise to the culture around you. Do not allow yourself to be deceived by what you hear out there. Do not allow yourself to let go of what you know to be true about God and who he's called you to be for the sake of buying into consumerism and isolationism and American exceptionalism and militarism and all of these other isms. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind The word repent in Greek, metanoia, to change your mind, to change your brain. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into you and begins that process of transformation, he begins with your mind, the way you understand God, the way you understand yourself, the way that you see the world. It says this, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you know why so many of you are in anxiety? Because you feel this tug to God's will, yet you feel this tug to what culture is telling you you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do with your life. And you're being stretched thin. You're being stretched thin and it's putting you in a place of anxiety. And in that place, it's so hard to test and approve what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is. But when we submit to God, when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and to transform us by the renewing of our mind, it is in that place that we begin to understand God's will and his desire for us and for the world. And I believe that it's only in the colony we can begin to ignite the divine imagination that enacts a world in which Jesus is truly Lord. We cannot ignite that divine imagination with one foot firmly planted in the culture around us. We can't see it. We can't see God when we're still ensnared by the enemy, by the flesh, and by the world. But when we find ourselves in the colony, in the family of God, as he transforms our minds, as we begin to see the way that he does, he ignites our divine imagination to address the 21st century the way that it actually is, to influence culture the way that it actually is, but seeking to be a faithful presence in the world. Not seeking to isolate, not seeking to conquer it, but to be a faithful presence. We need to reclaim the gospel as truly radical and truly alternative or else we've just sold out. We can go back to listening to TED Talks and going to YouTube concerts. So what do we expect in this series? I, I'm not trying to tell you what to think but I am learning to, to, to help you see, to know how to see the way that God sees. I want us to be guided by compassion in all things that we discuss. And we want to empower you to contribute to the conversations of the 21st century. Even if we come to different conclusions. That we're still bound by Christ. And that everything is a conversation. But most of all this, and if you'd stand with me please. I want us... When we see the 21st century, when we see this world, when we see our culture and our society for what it truly is, I want us to be able to stand on this truth. Jesus is Lord over all. The more that we are honest about the world around us, the more imperative there will be for us to understand that Jesus is Lord. He's not a convenience. He's not an option. He's not just a nice teacher. He doesn't just give us good advice. He is our Lord and Savior. He is the Lord upon which all other forms of power in this world will be held to a standard. And we get to proclaim His goodness to a broken world that desperately needs that good news. So let us pray and worship this beautiful Lord and Savior of ours. Holy Father, teach us what it means to be your colony. Teach us what it means to be foreigners in a strange land, to be resident aliens, to be people in exile, people who celebrate their oddness because that's us being faithful to you. Father God, we repent for all of the times that we've acquiesced to culture around us, that we have not believed who you have told us that we are, but we have picked up lies from the flesh and the enemy and the world and substituted those small and imperfect things for your perfection. Lord, root those things out of us. Sanctify us by your presence, by your Holy Spirit, that we can be the holy nation and the royal priesthood that you're calling us to be and you've destined us to be. And teach us what it means to proclaim from the rooftops, Jesus is Lord over all and in all and through all. Father, we celebrate you for this tonight. We pray these things in his strong and beautiful name. Amen.